Well, we're going to read the Bible just now. We're going to read from Matthew's Gospel. And uh, we're going to turn to the Sermon on the Mount and the few verses that Jesus speaks about the Sixth Commandment in. <clears throat> you might know that uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is in places a sort of an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Jesus bringing his particular <clears throat> understanding and depth to them. So if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 969, 969, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 from verse 17, but first we read the verses from Exodus 20, the one verse from Exodus 20, which simply says, you shall not murder Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder. Then Jesus speaks, and in verse 17, <clears throat> he says this of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us his word today. Well, we come uh, this morning to the sixth commandment, do not murder. Just in the original, two words, no murder, no killing. The authorized version, thou shalt not kill. Maybe the best known of all the commandments, and uh, perhaps the one that there's most agreement on. Just about every individual in every society believes that Murder is a bad thing. Uh, lots of debate, perhaps, amongst people about what constitutes murder. But nevertheless, there's a general acceptance that it is something that is beyond the pale. And, and, and we may feel pretty comfortable in some ways about this commandment. We, we sometimes think about some of the other commandments and we initially feel that, that uh, a little bit guilty. Remember the illustration before about not wanting to go to the, uh, the, the auto bank and, and uh, have the balance displayed because you start to realize how bankrupt you really were. And, and uh, uh, we're a bit like that with some of the commandments. We, we face them and they sort of say something about us. And maybe we feel a little bit more comfortable with this one. And yet whenever we see its full extent, 
then that confidence perhaps will be taken away from us. Well, let's try and look at what the Bible means whenever it says, do not murder. We've got a very simple structure to, to help us through this uh, this morning. What, why, what else, and what now? Four little titles. What, why, what else, and what now? What does it mean? Why does it say it? What else does Jesus say it involves? And what now? In other words, what do we do in the light of all of this? So much that we could say. So we're going to say, uh, I think as we come away, oh, I wish we'd looked at this or wish we'd looked at that, but uh, we look at some of these things in front of us today. So what? What does it mean? Well, the fact that some of us grew up learning thou shalt not kill probably hasn't helped us massively with understanding what this commandment is saying because there are a number of words for killing in the Old Testament and the word that this a, a passage uses is the word for murder. And so the NIV or the ESV translation is better, do not murder. So it doesn't re- involve, for example, killing an animal. Remember whenever you used to, you know, dispatch a wasp, uh, you, you would have a, a toddler going, dad, do not kill, you know. <laughs> and and uh, I say, okay, you deal with that then, then that's fine. Uh, but but uh, it, it's not referring to, to killing an animal. We'll say a little bit more about that. It's, it's referring to the taking of a human life. Nor, now here's where we start to get a little bit more controversial, nor is it referring to the taking of human life in any circumstance. In this same book of Exodus that, that sets out this, pen, this uh, commandment, we also see capital punishment or the death penalty given as an appropriate punishment for certain crimes. Now, so we can say that at least at this time when it was written, it's not referring to capital punishment. Now, Christians disagree about whether that's enforced today. That's a whole other discussion. Some people would say no, of course. Others, I think it's fair to say, and this would have been the the dominant view in our sort of uh, reformed stream down through the years, would have looked to what Paul says in Romans 13 about the state being instituted by God for all of its flaws and being God's agent of wrath to punish the wrongdoer. And from that, that they would suggest that part of the way that God generously rules the world is by giving the state government uh, power and responsibility to punish those who take life. And and many would argue that they can even uh, take away the privilege of living, in other words, capital punishment for that crime. Now, that's a big debate within Christian circles. You can talk about that over lunch. Now, uh, nor is it referring to, for example, a soldier taking life in in an appropriate war. Next Sunday, we'll mark Remembrance Sunday. We'll acknowledge the dreadful situations that people stepped into on our behalf. And, and uh, many Christians have understood that there's a, such a thing as a, a just war. So, for example, an appropriately, establishment, uh, appropriately established government goes to war for the protection of its citizens rather than as an aggressor. I remember doing many, many years ago some outreach work in Corn Market in Belfast, and we I think it was a group, and we were singing and so on, and, and uh, then we went out to speak to people who were gathering up, um, and uh, I, I got chatting to a man, and, and he said, oh, you know, God wouldn't be interested in me. And I said, well, why do you say that? He says, well, I was a soldier, and I, 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 I did some pretty terrible things. 
And, and I, I think I knew that as soon as I was a soldier, God, that me and God were finished. And, and I was able to say to him that, well, you know, you know that Jesus met a, a soldier once, a centurion, and, and uh, he commended him for his faith. And, and in some circumstances, when Jesus met people, he, he called them to change the path that they were on. So the woman caught in adultery, he said, go, neither do I condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. But to the soldier, he, he didn't do that. In other words, it would seem to be that, that you can be a, a Christian and, and follow Jesus in that particular career, as it were. You can talk about that over your dessert. The word here is very specific. There are other words that have the idea of killing in general, but the word here is what we would call unlawful killing, murder, and, and the NAV helps us with that translation. And then if you look at some of the ways that that's worked out in some of the other laws in the Old Testament, it's, it's very nuanced, very helpfully a, a nuance, and some of our legal system rests on some of these principles. So, for example, there is provision for what we would call manslaughter. If a person dies as the result of an accident, the one who had killed him would not be put to death, but would receive a, a, lesser, a lesser sentence. There was the provision for the protection of life. So, if you were building your house in ancient Israel, there was a, a law that required you to put a, a parapet, a, a fence, or a low wall around the, the roof of your house, because you would often invite neighbors up to the roof of your house. That, that was where things happened in the evening, in the cool breeze, and so on. And uh, you had a duty of care to provide for those who were on your property. There's also the provision for self-defense so that if, if someone, interestingly, if someone broke into your property at night and you killed them, you would not be liable. But if it was during the day when presumably you could see that there might be another way to deal with the issue and you killed them, then there would be guilt resting upon you. So, so you can see that it's all very carefully worked through. So that, that's what this commandment is talking about the unlawful taking of life. Why? Why? Why does God say this? Pretty much, as we said, every society accepts that murder is wrong, but sometimes they do so for very different reasons. That's increasingly the case now within our Western society. Western society, in many ways, is, although coming out of a Christian background, thinks out of a sort of an evolutionary way of thinking. And, and ultimately, that is about survival of the fittest. And so, it's hard for humanists who, who reject God to, to have a good argument for the value of life. And life in particular doesn't really have any value in itself. And so, it's pretty hard for people to to argue for, for why it is wrong to kill others, except for the fact that, well, it's going to make everything a little bit happier for people if you can go out and hopefully your life will be valued. So, so some people find it hard to argue for the value of life. Other people argue that all life has value. So, for example, in some of the Eastern faiths, religions, you get the teaching of uh, Jainism, where a strict Jane will, will sweep the street as they walk along with a little brush so that they won't step on any ants because they believe that all life is sacred. 
And, and that sort of thinking is a present in some of the more extreme versions of the modern environmental movement. And in their thinking, there's no real difference in value between a dolphin and a human. Now, Christianity is very, very different than all of these other things. All life has value because God has made all life, but human life has particular value because uniquely human beings are made in the image of God. We bear something of His mark upon us. It's not that we look like Him. It's in the non-physical areas that we bear His image. So, we're made to be able to reason and to choose. We're creative and all of those things. As someone has said, anytime someone invents a machine or writes a book or paints a landscape or enjoys a symphony or calculates a sum or names a pet, he or she is proclaiming the fact that we are made in God's image. So, human life has great value because uniquely amongst God's creation, we are His image bearers and we are His masterpieces, Shelley was saying to the boys and girls, and therefore to attack that masterpiece is to say something about our attitude towards the one who has created it. Now, all of this reminds us that God has an enemy, and we, as His masterpieces, have an enemy. We've been learning that in Revelation. The, the devil delights to see the destruction of God's image bearers. Jesus once talked about the devil and said that he was a murderer from the beginning. In other words, murder is a spiritual issue. It is part of the evidence of the great uh, rebellion against God that is ultimately motivated by the evil one. And you've got to say that as you look at human history, and even recent human history, the evil one has done an impressive job in prompting the murder of God's image bearers. 20th century has been described as the most bloody of all centuries. Six million Jews killed horrendously, 20 million Ukrainians, 50 million Chinese. Louise was visiting the killing fields, I think, yesterday. There were 8 million people in Cambodia in uh, 1974, I think it was, 1975. And within four years, a third of the population, two and a half million people, had been killed by the Khmer Rouge. An amazing, amazing number of people. Scholars suggest that they can trace much of the death toll of recent years, recent decades, to just four people, Hitler, Lenin, Mao, and Stalin. Between them, they estimate that 175 million deaths are accounted for. And the scale is so massive that we can only really understand it by saying the evil one is at work within this world to bring this culture of death. And we might also see that he is at work to desensitize us, especially us now in the West, to the taking of life. I remember whenever I was at school, being up in the school library, and, and there were a few books that, that some of the boys used to like to go to, to look at because they were pictures of the Second World War, and there were some pretty gory pictures in them. There were pictures of people who'd been killed in the war. And at, such, at that time, 
that was pretty much the only place where, where I saw anything like that. Now it is suggested that the average teenager, by the time that they will graduate, will see something like 80,000 murders depicted on television, movies, and video games. What will that do to our society? What is it doing to our society? We see the hand of the evil one surely in the plague of suicide amongst our young men especially. Northern Ireland, the highest suicide rate in the UK, twice that of England. We see it in the acceptance of abortion and euthanasia in the Western world. If you were at the Both Loves Matter event last week, I'm sure you were astounded by the statistics in England and Wales since the introduction of the 1967 Abortion Act. There have been 8 million abortions. In 2015, for every three children born in England and Wales, one was aborted. The vast majority of those, of course, involved healthy babies and healthy mothers. By the age of 45, one in three women in England and Wales will have had an abortion. And that is not only a devastating fact for those children that never see a a birth, but it is also a devastating effect for those who go through that and who then live with the consequences of that afterwards. No doubt over coming years, we will see calls for assisted suicide to grow and grow because as society becomes increasingly focused in on ourselves, we will need to find a way of dealing with both inconvenient babies and inconvenient elderly. Now, now that's not just an issue out there in the world. These are issues here for us, aren't they? Today, there'll be lots of people sitting in churches up and down the land, and, and, and as they think about this commandment, they will think of some burden that they're carrying, something that they've been involved in, something that we've been involved in, and we know it has left a terrible mark upon us. And we need to know that there is a God who comes alongside broken people with broken hearts and who rescues those who need saving. I was struck by John McAvoy's words at that Both Lives Matter event and, and how she said that in the early church, uh, James uh, w- w- was uh, quoted and James says that, that, that religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after uh, widows and orphans in their need. And those were the most vulnerable members of society at that time. And the church was up to its neck in helping And surely the church is going to have to be a refuge as we live in a culture that enjoys death or or accepts death at both ends of life. And we're going to have to be a place where life is cherished and treasured, where people are helped. So, So that's what, that's why. What about what else? Because Jesus takes this commandment, and as we read in Matthew chapter 5, he looks at its full extent. Now, I think it's fair to say that that's always been there. The intention of the commandments was always there. Proverbs 16, 2, all a ways man seem innocent to him, uh, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. In other words, the heart was always there at the heart of God's intention. But by the time that Jesus came along, anything 
anything other than the externals was pretty much lost. And so in Matthew 5, he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. So Jesus is saying this commandment deals not only with the actual action, but it goes much deeper. If you foster contemptuous angry, then you're guilty. And Jesus mentions these two terms of abuse. One is raka, which probably means something like empty-headed or stupid. And one is full, which refers to an undesirable character. So sort of scoundrel type thing. And, and, and if that's the sort of thing that's in your heart, Jesus says, then you're on the wrong side of this commandment. You're, you're guilty. You've committed murder within your heart. Of course, it's not as bad as going the whole way, but it's still a breaking of God's law. Alistair Begg says this, just because we may not have committed a violent act against anyone, just because we have not physically murdered someone, are we to imagine ourselves to be in the clear, he says? Ah, but have you hated someone? Have I wished someone harm or evil or misfortune? Did you ever drive away from a meeting thinking, I'd really like to kill that guy? Ever get so frustrated or angry that you call them a total idiot to their face or to others or, or just to yourself? That's what raka means. And Jesus says anyone who thinks of his brother or sister as an empty-headed fool is subject to the same judgment as those who commit murders. We kill people all the time with our contemptuous anger, our animosity and malice, our hostility and gossip, little hidden murders. Now, whenever you start to, to hear what Jesus says and you see his dealing with the heart, then we, we realize that, that none of us can stand in, in, in the face of these commandments. And not only that, you remember, and we, we don't have time really to look at this, but not only that, but the, the commandments put upon us the obligation to do the positive of the thing that is forbidden. So, so the Heidelberg Catechism says this, is it enough if we do not kill our neighbors in any such way? That's the, that's the legalistic way of looking at the commandment. As long as I don't kill anybody, I'm okay. No, the catechism says, for when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards them, to prevent injury to them as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Wow. So who can stand in the face of God's love? Well, that brings us to our, our, our last point, and that is what now? Having understood the, the, the weight, the penetration of, of, of this commandment and the others, what, what do we do? Where do we go? And of course, the answer is, well, we, we go to Jesus. Isn't it amazing that, that, that God deals with murderers in the Scriptures? those who have murdered in their hearts, and those who have murdered in fact. God dealt with Moses, you remember, who murdered the Egyptian. He, he dealt with David. We sing David's songs, the one who murdered Uriah. We, we read the letters of Paul, who was involved in the murder of Stephen. In Acts chapter 9, as it talks about Paul's conversion, it says that Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's 
disciple. You see, so, so God, God deals with murderers. So we can go to Jesus. And the reason that we can go to Jesus is that Jesus allowed himself to be murdered so that people like us might be forgiven. In Luke, we're, we're told about Jesus' death. And it tells us that, that Jesus didn't, in, in some ways, that Jesus didn't just die from, from the beatings and, and from the agony of the cross, from the loss of blood, from the suffocation. He gave his life. This is what it says in Luke chapter 23. It was about the sixth hour. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then it says this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Literally, into your hands I commit my breath. And it says, when he said this, he breathed his last. So, Jesus gave up the breath of life. He expired. Why did he do that? Well, he did that for people like us, for murderous people like us. He, he, he bore the punishment of our sin, of our taking of others' life, either in action or, or by intention, and he did that by laying down his own. And he did that so that your sin and mine could be forgiven including even the sin of murder. He did that so that he could breathe new life into us. God breathed life when Adam and Eve were made. And now he comes to breathe new life into us, to recreate us, to, to bring us to life again, to cause us to be born again so that he could make us new people. You see, a Christian is someone who who not only has the breath of life in them, but who has had new life breathed into them. And Jesus made that possible by giving up his life, by giving up his breath. And now you see, if you have new life breathed into you, then the calling is on your life to begin to live like Jesus. To, to be the ones who, who, who treasure life, who, who treasure others, who serve others, who, who help others flourish and become what God intends for them to be by their actions and by their words and even by their thoughts towards them. So you see, what now? Well, what now is we, we run to the Jesus who, who breathed out his life, who breathed out his breath, so that you could have new life breathed into you, so that you could treasure lives around you. That's our calling. That's what the sixth commandment lays upon us. Not just to say, that's a terrible world out there, but to say, don't we see the depths of sin in our hearts? Praise God that we've been rescued from it. Now let's serve one another, and the world. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you today that you, knowing the very worst about us, nothing hidden from your sight, how we thank you that Jesus breathed out his life for us. Oh, Lord, 
how much you must love us, how much that should set us free, how much that should motivate us to serve a world around us. Help us, Lord, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.